I think one of the uh, persisting questions that people have, uh, that most people want answered, when it comes to life and our existence and the existence of humanity, is how will it all end? How will it ultimately all kind of wrap up? And is there a point and a purpose to what we're doing? Is there some kind of grand plan, grand design? And if there is, should we, should we then kind of organise our lives around it? Should we live in accordance with it? What is the ultimate fate of humanity? Is there something more to us than the time that we have on this planet? And if there is, is it better? Uh, is there something worse awaiting for us? But most of all, I think, is, is it knowable? Can we know about it? Can we um, organise our lives around it? And Christianity uh, answers that question with a resounding yes. There is something more. It is knowable and defined. And how you experience the more is attached to how you respond to the claims that Jesus makes. And Jesus made a lot of claims about the final state and condition of humanity. That we will either uh, enjoy all the promises of God to destroy sin and death, to have uh, reversed, if you like, in us all of the chaos and decay and disordered relationships that cause uh, our experience of physical, emotional, economic and spiritual suffering, to have them all reversed and then to live permanently in harmony with God uh, in harmony with each other and creation. A final state uh, referred to as the kingdom of God, where God's goodness is experienced and his sovereignty and his rule and reign is enjoyed. Or, depending on how we respond to Jesus, we will remain outside of this new uh, renewed reality, fixed in a state of sin and death, where God's goodness and blessing are absent and his rule and reign fixes that Eternally, And we saw a little bit of that last week in chapter 16 with the, with the rich man and Lazarus. These two fixed states that exist eternally that can't be undone, can't be crossed over. There they are. Only Jesus didn't see the kingdom of God as merely some future event. He saw it as having taken place already. A reality and an experience that was being realized in his arrival and his, in his turning up and walking through uh, planet earth. And having your hearts and affections and priorities uh, reorganized and transformed by perceiving that Jesus in his arrival actually is God's promised kingdom builder. And that your passport to citizenship uh, in this kingdom is attached to him. Attached to him by faith. A faith that God has qualified you to share in the kingdom of God through trusting that Jesus is the one who delivers us from one kingdom of darkness and transfers us into a kingdom of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Uh, wholeness and peace is how Paul presents it in, in Colossians. But even so, we can't help but wonder, when will the builder be finished? When will our passports get their final stamp? As we wander through this weary old world, and all its delights and all of its disappointments and decay, we long for God to make all things right. We long for the promise that we read about in Revelations 21, that I am making all things new, of a universal wholeness and a universal peace. 
Deep down, we know that we are made to live uh, somewhere free from pain, free from sorrow, free from death. We long for a better place, and we long for a place where justice is done, where the goodness of God rules supreme, and where people have peace and joy. Well, the Pharisees were also people who longed for the kingdom of God. If you think living under our current political climate is a challenge, try living under the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. The Jews longed for liberation. They longed for the oppression of their people and their nation to end. The Pharisees had organized their whole lives around this goal with strict disciplines and, and acts of piety to, to try and encourage and, and, and motivate along the arrival of the kingdom of God. They felt, they believed that if God's people could become worthy of God's promise, then God would send the promised Messiah, his promised kingdom builder, the offspring of David as promised in Second Samuel, and God's people, the people of Israel, would become the promised blessed nation that they read about in Genesis 12. They longed for uh, a cultural, spiritual, political peace and power that they knew they were meant to know. They wanted to know when God would establish his righteous rule, when his mighty king would just sweep away uh, their oppression and establish their blessing. The coming of the kingdom was a burning issue uh, in Jesus' day. Today we are looking at the middle of chapter 17. We were going to look at the whole chapter, but as I said, uh, my writing capacities aren't quite that good. So we're just looking at the middle section there where the Pharisees ask this question in relation to this burning issue. And we're going to look at it to see how Jesus addresses the question around end times and eternal realities. It should be noted, though, that Luke 17 has some of the most ambiguous and hard to translate little words and phrases. So what you're going to be hearing is what I think makes most sense. But perhaps what is most striking about verse 20, and all the commentators agree on this, is that the question that the Pharisees are asking here in this moment is actually genuine. We're so used to by now in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees having ulterior and kind of disingenuous motives. They're usually out to trap Jesus. But here they are asking an honest question about when the kingdom of God would arrive. The question is honest, but the answer they sought was built on misguided expectations and interpreting of evidences. And Jesus once again aims to correct their misunderstanding in this case. Uh, well, in this case, the correction is of, of the, both of the, the nature and the timetable of the kingdom of God. It's perhaps one of the most, um, it really is quite amazing uh, aspects of Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders that despite their rising hostility and opposition to Jesus, he keeps pushing back across the table opportunity to perceive him for who he really is, to, to actually join him in what God is doing uh, in the world. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees' question comes to Jesus built on, as we said, two misguided platforms. Firstly, they see the kingdom of God, the common or consensus was that the kingdom of God was completely a future event. 
They had failed to hear Jesus' repeated teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it has come, that in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God uh, has arrived, has already broken into the world. Jesus' preaching of the good news of the kingdom was on replay about this. And it was the news that God's promised blessings, his kingdom, were being realized in his arrival. Jesus' ministry and teaching, his healing and his authority to reverse uh, spiritual, physical afflictions were evidences that God was breaking into the world, that he was reversing all the things that sin had corrupted, that sin was destroying, and that in Jesus there was evidence that things would be made new again. And, and things could be different. And that Jesus stood at the center of this inbreaking uh, arrival of the kingdom. But the idea that the kingdom of God would come slowly and humbly, that it was small in its beginnings like a mustard seed or, or like yeast, that it was present in the person of Christ and yet was still something to, to come and to earnestly be prayed for, that it was being both built and broadcast now in the lives of those who responded to Jesus was not something that the Pharisees had categories for. And the fact that they stood outside of this process, that they still needed to be invited in, did not fit their futuristic uh, cataclysmic event timetable. So Jesus is redirecting. They had this idea that there would be a great demonstration of power and prestige. A messianic leader would uh, sweep away everyone apart from good Jews and then they would enjoy God's blessing. And Jesus seemed to be saying the kingdom is now at hand. It's not big and grand. It's small and it's made up of the humble and those who would come and trust in him. And then secondly, they thought that they would be able to determine the arrival of this event through their their scientific, their geopolitical, uh, spiritual observations and assessments. They thought that they would be able to kind of determine exactly when and how and all those things. Sounds to me like the Pharisees have been down one too many YouTube rabbit holes or been reading too many Tim LaHaye books. They failed to simply see what was right in front of them in Jesus. Nor had they listened to Jesus' straight-up denunciation of sign-watching that it's a distraction that actually leads you away from responding and, and, and living appropriately to the claims of Jesus. We, we, we saw about that probably when we were in Luke 11. When was that? 2015? Sign watching and all these other little narratives are convenient distractions from dealing with Jesus, telling you that you have to respond to the evidence being presented in him. Jesus seeks to shift the narrative. Rather than being shaped by so-called signs and world events, be shaped by what you see happening in me. Organize your life around this world event, around the inbreaking of the Son of God into the world. You don't need to go and store beans in your bunker or prepare yourself for some epic future speculative apocalyptic battle. You need to deal with right now. The evidence that is right in the midst of you. You need to deal with what, uh, with things that are not visible, like the condition of your heart, towards the saving power of God 
and the presence of the kingdom that is being revealed in Jesus. And one of the ambiguous words in this passage appears here in Jesus' redirect. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The NIV has a literal interpretation. The kingdom is within you. It's a little hard to believe that Jesus sees those who he's currently correcting, the Pharisees, uh, with their misguided understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God as actually possessing the kingdom of God within them. Nor is the kingdom of God some uh, like intrinsic little spiritual box inside of everybody that just has to be opened up. Rather, the kingdom of God is an external reality that must come in and transforms what exists. I think it's better to hear Jesus saying that they are in the presence, that the kingdom of God is actually in their midst, in their presence, and it's Jesus. And since Jesus is the king of this kingdom, its reality is manifest through his presence and his activity, which means that it is not merely an abstract spiritual force, but tied to an actual physical person. And Jesus has been visibly demonstrating the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of the great reversal of the powers of sin and death through his preaching, validated by the power over sin and death and all its chaotic forms through his miracles. They validate what Jesus is saying. Jesus' point is, he is all they need to take part in enjoying the blessing of the kingdom of God. It is not some future event, but it is an offer on the table right now. You want to know how to be sure and secure about your future? It won't be achieved through mastering world politics and conspiracy theories. It will be achieved through a living, transformative experience of Jesus. And he is pushing across the table to the Pharisees and to anyone else who wants to listen. Will you take it up? We do a lot of this, going down rabbit holes and looking for signs and evidence to give us the security for the future we crave. We see our culture unraveling. We speculate about end times and prophecies in the Bible. Some of them are in this passage. We get sidetracked by the timetables interpreting signs and we forget to actually live in the now. And Jesus is saying, I am all the security that you need. Organize your heart and organize your life around me. Having pushed this alternative narrative towards the Pharisees, that the kingdom of God is, is now and its manifestation is seen in his words and his deeds, you know, feel free to take it up any time you like. Feel free to come and participate in it. Jesus now turns to his disciples and speaks of a future kingdom. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and the sky and lights up from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And here is another ambiguous sentence, the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man is an expression from Daniel 7, and it has been one of the favorite titles of Jesus to self-describe. The actual day of the Son of Man is this pictured prophecy of a God-man who ascends to the throne uh, of God's eternal kingdom. And it's a day of final judgment. It's a day of cataclysmic judgment. And some take this to be a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
And this enigmatic phrase there of where the vultures, or if you interpret it, where the eagles gather as a reference to the Roman legions, because the eagle is emblazed on all of their armour in that. And on that day, you will have these fond memories. In that day of trouble, in that day of tribulation, you'll have all these fond memories of me. And you will want to be back there rather than dealing with this day of judgment. I think more likely that Jesus is actually preparing his disciples for the fact that the future culmination of the kingdom, that he has started right here in their midst, a kingdom that they will take part in by sharing the reality of Jesus, by living that out, is not something that they are going to live to see. They're not going to be around when the fulfillment, when, when, when Jesus returns for his second coming. But their lives of active discipleship will see them long for it. The taste and the experience of the, of the kingdom of God in their lives, that, that a relationship of Jesus has brought them into as it transforms their lives, will have them long for the completion of it. We'll have them long for Jesus. And it may be that as they live out their Christian lives of discipleship in this world, for them in particular, these disciples, that they do have these memories of Jesus. Remember when Jesus did this. Remember when he walked on the water. Remember when he did that. For you and I, as we live our lives, we think, remember when Jesus met me uh, and saved me from my sin. We have, we too Uh, We weren't disciples, we didn't walk with Jesus, but we have concrete, evidential moments of Jesus coming into our lives that can hold us in place. Their existence and our existence in this broken and misguided world will see them and us face temptations to get distracted from living for the kingdom, occasionally even becoming so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly impact, like of, of all we're thinking about. Is the return of the kingdom of heaven and looking to the stars and the signs, we begin to become completely inept and effective in our lives. Even if you hear about the destruction of the temple, even if you hear that Vespian and the Roman legions have killed hundreds of thousands, possibly in an estimate up to a million Jews. Even if you hear that Vladimir Putin is causing a war in the Ukraine, the Chinese threats to invade Taiwan, the impact of global nine, of COVID-19 on global supply chains is bringing about the end of the world. Maybe you actually have read a Tim LaHaye book and you see the mark of the beast everywhere and the Antichrist in everyone. Don't be deceived. Don't be distracted by rumors of this and that. Don't be reeled in by people saying... Uh, that they claim that Jesus has made some kind of special new revelation to them. Don't be distracted by all this. Keep living as citizens of the kingdom of God who trust in what Jesus has already made known and live accordingly. I mean, that's pretty much all there is to it. Don't be sidetracked by some nut job on some weird back channel YouTube thing. Jesus says, rest in my promises. On the day of the Son of Man, the day I returned to end the era of this kingdom, the kingdom of sin and death and its grip on the cosmos, on the day when I come to transform it with my rule and reign of universal peace and blessing, that will be an unmistakable day. You will not miss it. It will be universally obvious Signs and things will be unnecessary. The the final cataclysmic event will not be some localized war or political event. 
it will be a total reordering of the cosmos so that no one is in any doubt about who its true king is. You won't miss it because you haven't been watching CNN or Fox News. But first, Jesus says, another cataclysmic event must take place. But first, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus has already made several references to uh, the inevitable rejection and suffering uh, that will lead to his death and indeed his resurrection. Jesus has always viewed and understood the kingdom of God as being validated and vindicated through his death and resurrection. In order for Jesus' kingdom of grace, of new realities that shape, um, that radically shape new lives in people, peace in our hearts, they must first have their citizenship transferred from one kingdom to another, from living in this generation to living in a new generation. The cross and the resurrection is the cosmic event through which Jesus achieves that. He achieves it by identifying with sinners, taking their judgment and offering forgiveness of sin on the basis that Jesus has taken your condemnation in that act. And through his resurrection, he is vindicated as the one who not only defeats sin and death, but as the one who offers, now offers eternal life, kingdom life. Now all that remains is for you to identify with him. And as cataclysmic as the death and the resurrection of Jesus might be, it is a story that easily fades into the background, like all of God's overtures to humanity. So Jesus tells of two historic stories to warn against um, a similar future failure, to warn against just being casual about this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on a housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let no one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. There will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And he said to them, and they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. The kingdom has arrived and it, is, and it is active in the world, but its final state is still coming. And when it comes, it will make everyone's condition, the condition that they are in, instantly and permanently fixed based on whether it finds faith in them or rejection of its king. At that point, there will be nothing anyone can do to escape the judgment of the day of the Son of Man. 
And Jesus gives these two examples to make that point. The judgment of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah and just like the days of Lot. It will be universal, it will be irreversible and catastrophic. There will be nowhere to hide. There will be no time to make assessment based on signs and evidence. And there will be no opportunity to change the condition of your soul. Despite the story of coming judgment, people in those days will, and, and, in, and in our days will be going about their lives surprisingly unconcerned about this coming judgment. Two people will be walking their dogs. Two people will be washing their cars. Two people will be loving. Two people will be fighting. It will be more usual than unusual. Jesus is saying that people who find themselves involved in the exact same activities, sharing the exact same kind of life, will find themselves on the opposite sides of eternity. Jesus' point with these two stories is that once the day of the Son of Man arrives, the die is cast and you are fixed. And the only way of avoiding disaster on that day is to already have responded to God's provision of rescue and to have fixed that as a controlling reality of your life, to have that as the highest affection of your heart, to be living in a way that identifies you as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You know, no one drowned in the days of Noah through lack of information. They drowned through lack of response. Like anyone could have got on their ark I don't see anywhere where everybody was told no one can get on this ark apart from these seven guys. The reason people didn't get on this ark is because they didn't see it was necessary. They thought it was foolish. They didn't get on that ark. The lesson from the tragic story of Lot's wife is not to let anything distract you from pursuing refuge and citizenship that your soul must find in Jesus. Is not to allow something other, the things of this world, to have more value over your soul than what Jesus is offering in a relationship with him. Lot's wife was not destroyed because of what she looked at, but because of what she loved. It's a, it's a picture of her turning her heart back towards the comfort of Sodom and Gomorrah rather than toward the promises of God. God had shown them a way of salvation, their hearts and affections should have pursued it, but Lot's wife's fatal attraction was that she loved this world more than the promise of what was to come. I'm sure there are plenty of things that attract our hearts that want us to shape our lives around them, and Jesus is saying that only a heart that has me as its highest affection and deepest trust is ready the day of the Son of Man. That's what's being pushed across the table with this passage. Have you taken the time to respond or even just to think through all the claims that Jesus has made, not just kind of just dismiss them and then respond to them in a way that secures you so you don't have to panic, you won't have time. I was thinking about that submarine that went down and all the information about that. Apparently, they just didn't even know. Bang, like a crushed can of Coke. So it will be in the sun, day of the Son of Man. You will not have time. And the question that pushes across the table is, what of you? 
Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you again. Uh, as we look into your word, that it is constantly uh, pushing us to make decisions. Constantly asking us, where is our heart? Is our heart uh, a heart that has recognized your love and your grace and your care for us in Jesus? Or is it a heart that is dismissive of that and, 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 and just wants to p- pursue uh, other comforts, uh, other desires that are temporal, that will burn with the end of the world? Our prayer this morning is that you would press that into our hearts in a way that our hearts are warm with affection for a God who wants none to perish, for a God who wants all to enter into the rest of the kingdom of God. Would we know that truth in our lives? And if we don't know it, would we seek out someone who could um, help us move towards that in our own lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.